Remember the good old 1980s When things were so uncomplicated I wish I could go back there again And everything could be the same This is John Tokes Patoker, and this is my 80sography. Hello and welcome to season seven. Seven. I've been doing it for that long, of atisography. And we start with an interview. I don't know how this happened exactly, but it was an interview actually recorded last year, and for various reasons I haven't got around to editing and releasing it. And it's nothing to do with the quality of the interview, because it's a really good one. Really interesting one with um, John Tokes Patoka, mixer, engineer, producer, and one of the leading practitioners of the 80s 12-inch mix. Who I first heard of in the 80s from the Genesis and Peter Gabriel Phil Collins mixes he did I got rid of nearly all my CD singles and the two remaining ones I have left are those two Genesis ones Land of Confusion Tonight 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 they're the first CD singles I ever owned they've always been very special to me I love a good 12 inch mix I really do and he was responsible for so many good ones this is part one two consider it a 12 inch mix of a standard John Patoka interview like with all good 12-inch mixes, it all begins with the intro. This is the start of the interview. So, so what was your first start in the business? How did you get into into music? I started out, my dad was a musician. 
We'll go way back. So as a kid, I used to go to the Union with him in New York. He was a New York kind of studio guy. And uh, I got so interested in that environment that he was in, you know, the studio. It was like just something incredible for me. So I always kind of had that in the back of my childhood memory. And as I got a little bit older, I was in high school, I, I learned guitar, I played piano, my dad was a pianist. I ended up playing on a friend's demo. He asked me to play guitar on a demo he was recording, and he was recording in New York. I grew up in New Jersey, was born in Queens, but New York was super close. It's about, I don't know, kilometers, but you know, probably like 15 miles from, from Manhattan we lived. And uh, when I got into the studio, the owner saw I was super interested and said, listen, if you want to come by and, you know, hang out and learn some things, I can't pay you, but come on in. Our engineer wants to take two weeks vacation. And if I feel you're up to speed, you know, I'll let him go on vacation and you you can, you know, do some sessions. I was like, that sounds like a plan. I'm, I'm up for that. And uh, that's what actually transpired. So the first studio that I recorded a demo in as a guitarist, a little acoustic guitar part, became a, my first studio that I worked in. And uh, the owner of that studio was an interesting character. His name was Herb Abramson. And Herb was actually one of the original founding members, along with Ahmet Erdogan, of Atlantic Records. And this was his own private studio that he, uh, he, he had kind of in the, it wasn't really the basement, but ground floor level of this apartment building on 72nd Street, the West Side in New York. And he had all kinds of people come through there. Otis Blackwell, I'm going way back with some names, but he was a songwriter. I think he wrote Jailhouse Rock. He wrote some songs for um, uh, Elvis. I got to work with him there. Um, I put together ballerina dance uh, sequence for, for some ballerina. This is all tape too, tape editing that we did and recording to tape. And actually, it was a place that had a cutting cutting length. So I actually cut vinyl records um, there. And then from there, I moved on to some other uh, New York studios. I always had in the back of my mind, I wanted to make records. These were more kind of in demo land. And uh, yeah, that's that was sort of my beginning. So when did you think of actually doing it as a career and doing it seriously as a, as a job, as opposed to something that was just like, fun to do? Was there a moment that's like, actually, I can do this for a living as opposed to like just enjoying it. This could be my career. Yeah, I got, I never thought like this is like a career and, and it's a living, but it's something I want to do. I want to make records, you know. Yeah. So I just kind of went from there and I got serious about it. I mean, at that point, then they didn't really, really have much education. Like now you can you can go to schools for recording, you know, and a lot of just universities have recording programs. Um, back then, it was uh, there was only one place in New York. Uh, that actually kind of had a, a small program. They'd run it for a semester. And then somehow, I don't remember how I found out, I ended up going to Radio City Music Hall, a famous theater in New York, had a recording studio back in the day. E even pre the day that I got in there, like in the 40s and 50s, they did a lot of broadcast radio shows. It was a huge uh, place. The, the room could fit like, you know, an 80 piece orchestra kind of, kind of set up. But anyway, the chief engineer at that studio at the time was a guy by name, 
of Rob Friedman. He ended up working, I think, on some go-go records. Um, and I ended up taking a course with him. He had like a course that he was teaching for, I'm not sure, maybe a month or two. And that's when I got serious because there was books involved, you know, whatever books mm -hmm. you could find on audio recording and actually started learning from somebody who, you know, that's what he did. That was his career, you know. So that was my first kind of learning experience from somebody who, who knew what they were doing. And what was the first, what felt to you like the first big break or the big record you worked on? Or was it a gradual process? It kind of was a gradual process. I'll just break it down real quick in that I worked at a couple other studios in New York, one of which became, you know, a, a very big studio. But when I was working, it was a much smaller studio in a different location uh, called Right Track. And they moved to 48th Street and they became like a, a real place. And, you know, everybody ended up recording there. There was another studio on the way that I worked at was kind of like a jingle place. And they would do uh, record work at night. Pat Benatar actually worked in that place. So I worked there. And then through, through contacts, through various studios, like the tech department in one of the studios, the head tech, he had a friend who worked at the Hit Factory. And the Hit Factory in New York is also a really famous recording studio making records, you know. And uh, I said you know, let me know if anything opens up over there. I'm, I'm willing to go. But at this time, I was already like engineering. I wasn't seconding. You know, I think in, in England, you'll call it, you know, the T-boy or the, 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 the tape machine, you know, runner kind of guy. But, you know, Hit Factory had people in there. And uh, I ended up getting hired over there. And one of the first sessions I worked on as a second to the second engineer was David Bowie was in there. And uh, Hall and Oates were in there, people like that. You know, that's the kind of environment that I started soaking stuff up. But I still, like, just wanted to, to be the guy, like, engineering, producing. You know, I had my sights on that kind of thing, you know. And the opportunity was kind of limited back then. It was really more about, like, you're employed by the studio as a staff engineer, and you do what we need you to do kind of scenario. And it wouldn't necessarily be you're the first guy. Because even back then, even though there were staff engineers, there were the beginnings of more like freelance people attached to the artist, you know, coming in. That's how I, I, I ended up really my what I consider the break was at Sigma Sound in New York. Sigma had studios in Philly. Joe Tarsi, actually, who's the owner, just recently passed. But, you know, they did all the, they were the sound of Philadelphia, you know, in the seventies. It was, it, it, it was all over American radio. I'm sure you've got it over there in England. They had, you know, records by like the OJs, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, you know, it was Gamble and Huff. They were the main producers at that studio. And, uh, they brought three engineers up from Philly to open up the New York portion of Sigma Sound. And at the time, they were adding another studio. They just added a third studio. They had they call it Studio 5, 7, and 8, and they had a tape copy room. They needed somebody, you know, who could assist if that room wasn't busy, but they also needed somebody who could kind of step in there and do some recording. So I actually had a, uh, a demo reel that I, I brought around when I was, you know, looking at other possibilities. And uh, the chief engineer at the time was a fellow by the name of Jay Mark, and he heard it. He liked what he heard, and I got hired, and uh, 
the first session I was put on was with him. And I think it was probably within the first five minutes that he started recording an overdub. He said, Hey, I got to take care of some business in the office. You, 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 you do the rest you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so he, he liked what happened. And, uh, yeah, from there, it's like, I got to work with a lot of great people. I, you know, still coming up, there was a learning curve. I did assist with another engineer, Mike Hutchinson, who, uh, worked a lot. He did like the YMCA record for village people. He worked a lot with Ashford and Simpson and the uh, same kind of thing. It was a super busy studio. There were sessions booked around the clock. So after, you know, probably a good 12 to 16 hour day, if I'm assisting somebody, they're like, I'm going, you got to finish the session. So. Uh, the clients then became comfortable with me kind of recording, you know, the vocals or doing whatever it happened to be. And eventually, you know, I just ended up becoming like a staff engineer. And, uh, you know, I pulled some clients from what they, the other established engineers didn't have time for. And then there were newer, you know, newer artists coming through the door. And uh, I got to, you know, kind of find my way for me, it was about, more actually about remixing there because Philly, I don't know if you know who Tom Moulton is, but he's kind of one of the, I would think, the originator of the 12-inch extended dance remix. And New York, for some reason, became that too. You know, um, the engineers knew that process. So some DJs would come in there and uh, like Shep Pettibone or uh, Francois Kevorki and Francois K or Jellybean Benitez, or, you know, all these people I worked with uh, on remixes. So we got to do the, uh, the dance versions and the extended versions of it. And so I kind of became the mix engineer, although I loved recording, you know, it's like there was so much mix work. But then uh, uh, kind of a long way, I guess, of getting around to, for me, the thing that Kind of, I feel was the, the big break was, uh, working on Remain in Light for the Talking Heads and working yes. with Brian Eno. <clears throat> okay. I thought yeah. it takes us into 1980. Before we get there. So do you remember which specific Bowie and Hall and Oates tracks you worked on? Um, that was just as a second. I, I don't remember exactly what that was. I do remember though that, um, Luther Vandross was working with, um, with Bowie at the time and, uh, he was starting to, to do some stuff. But Eno was also involved, I think, on that record. I'm not sure what that record was. Again, I was kind of in and out of that room as the second to the second on those. But later on, I got to work with Hall and I was remixing some of their tracks. But that was, again, yes, that was that's, 80s. That's in the mid-80s, isn't it? So what year would this have been then? Is this mid-70s, late-70s? Yeah, that's like probably 77, I would say, okay. 78. Because I know yeah, Luther Vandross worked on Young, Young Americans, but that was around 74, 75, I think. Yeah, that was in Philly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, you know, do you know what the very first 12-inch mix was that anybody did? That anybody did? Yeah. Tom Old, first... I think, you know, that's the name that comes up. I don't know what the song was offhand. Who was that by, sorry? Tom Moulton, M O U. So you reckon he did the very first 12 inch mix? I think so. I'm pretty sure. Okay, that's a pretty cool claim to fame, isn't it? To say I did the very first one. Yeah. 1980. Okay, right. Nice. So we're into 1980. So you mentioned Remain in Light. So in 80, you worked on two incredibly iconic, um, cool albums. That's Remain in Light, Talking Heads, and Gaucho, Steely Dan. So oh, yeah. A, which came first? And B, how, how did you 
get that? Was it just from just being in that studio at the time? And and what? How did your roles change from one to the other? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So Steely Dan would have been before uh, the, the Remain of Light and Talking Heads, and that was yeah a very interesting story. I don't know how much detail I give on it, but Jim Doherty, who was one of the Philly engineers, uh, if somebody you know like of that stature, Steely Dan was coming in with their own engineer, Roger Nichols. You know, Sigma wanted to make sure everything was going to run smoothly. And people, you know, Steely Dan had a reputation for meticulous recording. So Doc took the gig as a second. And he was a full-on, you know, engineer. He did he did the first Madonna record and worked a lot with Reggie Lucas and M. Tume. They were a production duo. Reggie ended up doing Madonna on his own. But anyway, Jim was kind of their guy. And... uh he got the gig, but something happened where he had to go back to Philly. I think maybe somebody got sick in his family or whatever. And I was so super interested in Steely Dan that when, before they got in the room, the, the job of the assistant was to buy a set up the tape machines, make sure a playback and record was set up. There's a whole process, you know, that you don't go through now really with digital recording. But back then you'd have to set up this tape machine to the specs that the engineer wanted. So. I would watch him do that. I was kind of familiar with what was going on in their setup and watch him set mics up for whatever they were doing as per Roger's instructions. So when he had to go, I got the call to, to replace him. And uh, it was just a short period of time, like two weeks, I think. And it was to assist Roger Nichols. And Roger is a, another, you know, there's the whole music industry is littered with, for me, really interesting characters. And Roger, I think, was a, he was a brainiac. This guy had, I think he had like some kind of degree in physics, maybe even nuclear physics. Um, this at the time when digital reverb was really just coming in. And we got one of the first uh, Lexicon 224s, they were called, digital boxes in. And I can remember that during their sessions, they, they worked, but they didn't keep a lot of things because they were so focused on capturing what I guess they considered, you know, the ultimate take that a lot of the time he was running the machine, punching in, making mutes because when you're recording onto analog tape back then you had 24 tracks, really, you might have another machine you would sync up later. But if you were doing multiple vocal takes, for instance, you would either punch in on that track or you could open up another track. So if they got verses that they liked and say that was on track 16, they'd leave it alone. And now they're going for the choruses, they'd go on 17. But the the verse might be spread across a couple other tracks too. They didn't do the comp, the combination, you know, of the vocal takes until the very end because they didn't want to degrade the signal. Each time you record with analog tape, you're going to start losing some of the high end. You know, it, the, the signal changes. And they were all about the sound and keeping it pristine. So I saw that he had a lot of work to do. And uh, I noticed where he was punching and what he was doing. He also had a switch between monitors. They had smaller bookshelf speakers on the console, and they had full-on, you know, the, the soffited studio monitors. And we were doing a, a bass overdub one of the times with, uh, with uh, I think it was Walter. Yeah, Walter was there. They didn't, they worked with Chuck Rainey, but Walter was doing this one for some reason. And uh, 
I I saw him and I kind of like, do you want me to run the machine? And he was like, yeah, okay. So I started tape opping, you know, and punching in. And then I saw he was still doing his mutes. And uh, I said, do you want me to do the switching between the record and the playback? And it's like, yeah, okay. So we started working. And the tape op back then was really in control of the pace of, of the session. And Roger had his own pace and I had my pace, which I guess was a little quicker. But in any event, the, the session started moving and they all, their ears picked up like, Hey, like it seemed like we were getting something. They were getting, you know, they were getting up some, some parts of a bass take at this point. And there just came a point where the switching between the vocals and me running the machine and the switching between the speakers, it just became a little much for Roger. He was just like, Hey, Gary, I need to take a break. And uh, they were like, okay, fine. You know, we'll take a break. And he went out to the soda machine, came back with a, a chocolate bar. And it was just me and him in the control room. And he said, hey, John, he put his feet up over the remote. He says, I got it from here. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so for the rest of the time I was with them, I just more or less set up the tape machine, hung in the room and got to watch the way they worked. Because they wanted, Roger wanted to work at his pace, you know, not necessarily at at where I was going with it. It it was just a great experience, you know, watching them work. What was the most takes you did for anything, for any single thing, other than overdub or a basic track? Because they have a reputation for being meticulous. I don't know. You know, I mean, at that point, I just kind of lose track of that. I do recall the one other time in something I wasn't involved in that, that Jim was back on. They recorded, well, they recorded so much over there. I mean, they recorded drums. We had Jeff Bocaro in. We did piano, bass. I remember all these things, those vocals. I didn't get to do any guitar parts, but they did have a piano track that they liked. And they ended up moving to another studio. Uh, actually, right around the corner, there was a studio underground, underneath Studio 54. Sigma was on 53rd Street in New York and 54 was, you know, the next block over. And um, they were not, I, I don't know, they couldn't match up some sound that they were going for. So they came back in. And I just, it wasn't about the amount of takes they were doing. It was how do we get the piano sound back to the way they originally recorded. And there were notes on where the mic pre-levels were set and any other processing they had, EQs, you know, what exact mics they used, where they placed them and all that. And they were like, that just doesn't sound right. I mean, to anybody's ear, you you probably wouldn't notice it different. They had, I think, the piano tuner come in three or four times thinking it was the tuning. And then uh, at that point, I wasn't really involved anymore on it. So I don't know if they ended up getting more, doing another one, or going someplace else. But yeah, they were super meticulous.
So you've got the meticulousness of Steely Dan, and then you've got, from the outside in, seems like the more experimental style of David Byrne. Were they oh, yeah. kind of like two complete contrasts, or were there more similarities and differences between the way they worked? Well, I think uh, it's not so... Yeah, there's similarities in the way that they work, in the sense that, I mean, even Eno, in a way, it's like, he likes the imperfections of things, but the meticulous in the work ethic. You know mm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like in the sense that, yeah, let's take that again. Or, you know, man, I have stories with Eno too, where, you know, I actually, you know, a lot of people would talk about he had uh, a deck of cards or, or, or this kind of process he invented or worked on called Oblique Strategies. And I was aware of it, but I never saw it implemented. Do you know what I mean? Until I was on an Eno session. And he actually just wrote out on a couple pieces of paper some of those sayings that were on the cards. Like you could buy the deck of cards. I think you can get it as an iPhone app now. <laughs> and, you know, Steely Dan would never do anything like this, but <laughs> they would rec be recording and you would only consult, you know, the Oracle, the card or whatever you want to call it. If things weren't going, the, you know, and you wanted like some kind of creative uh, impetus and you'd have to follow exactly what that card says. You could not not follow it and you couldn't change from what it said. And I remember one time that we were recording on a 24 track machine and we consulted with the writing that he just like put in a, you know, little paper basket or whatever, picked it out. And it said, reverse the tape, turn it over and put track 17 and record. So the tape is now running upside down and backwards. And whatever was on that track, you're wiping it and you're now overdubbing onto that, a new part. And it could be that that's the vocal that you've been using. You know what I mean? Mm. I don't remember exactly what we wiped, but we wiped what was ever on that track. And that's kind of what got us going in a different direction, you know? Because we were we're at a point where it wasn't happening, and that that kind of changed it around. So yeah, that's a different, definitely a different way of recording. I mean, again, today compare it to the DAW, where you have really unlimited tracks and you can save everything. There, it's like if it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> so which tracks did you work on in Remaining Light? Well, I worked on that whole record. The the way that one came in was uh, they actually came in the studio. With Dave Jordan, who was an engineer that started, well, I don't, he didn't start the record. I think Ray Davies started the record with him in the, in the Bahamas at Compass Point. And then, uh, I guess Ray had another gig to go to and it was still going on. And, uh, Dave picked it up and he came in in New York. And so I, I assisted him. I, I was at that point kind of like Doc when he was doing the, uh, Steely Dan record and went back to seconding for Roger. I, Ended up seconding for Dave, and then Dave couldn't hang, so uh, he had to leave, and and I took over the project. And uh, I mean, I recorded well. I did that, and I did uh, my life in the bush and ghosts too with with Bernardino, mm. uh, replacing things, you know, because the the process of the way that they recorded, as far as I understood it, from uh, Compass Point in the Bahamas was that they just recorded a bunch of more or less jams, you know, that they went through like a, 
a metamorphosis, you know, e- even up into the point of when mixing that record, I mixed half the record with Eno and Dave Jordan mixed the other half with David Byrne. And the final kind of arrangements of the songs weren't determined until the mix. Uh, the mix, the other thing that Sigma had in New York was automated consoles. Uh, this was like pre-SSL. Sigma ended up bringing SSLs in later, but I remember we mixed that with, I think it was called an Allison 64K mix system that would automate the fader mutes and the fader volumes. That's how the songs really got into their final shape. Because when you recorded more or less, you know, I'd say like 90% of the time, it wasn't like you were just doing, say it was a guitar part, you're just doing it in the chorus. You played from the top of the song to the end of the song. You know, every take, was top to bottom. It wasn't like, you know, nowadays you you might just do the verse section and have a certain instrumentation there. And the bridge has a different instrumentation, you know, and sound. And choruses, same thing, different, you know. For them, it was like they wanted it to go all the way through and uh, develop it later on. So, yeah, that was, a again, another interesting way of working. I mean, I was kind of familiar with it because when you do 12-inch uh remixes back then too again it's all tape it was all about mixing it in sections and editing and then mixing it you know the next section and editing that so so you kind of what i would call almost like micro mix you know instead of mix from top to bottom of a song you'd mix it in sections and perfect that section and then move on Oh, that's interesting. Okay, we'll get to the twelve-inch mixes. But um, before we carry on with my life in the bush of ghosts, one more question: Did you on um, Remain in Light? Did you work on What's in a Lifetime? And do you remember the first time you heard that song? And did you think, yeah, this is going to be a hit? No, but the first I do remember the first time seeing David Byrne do a vocal, <laughs> and I thought, wow, who is this guy? <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. It really was incredible. Just like when you see him on stage or in videos, move. He's yeah. moving when he's singing, you know. Well, that jerkiness. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was just incredible. And, you know, the the energy and the personality and, you know, again, the experimentation. Uh, they, were, they didn't even, he was writing lyrics, you know, at the time, too, you know, completing songs. So it's not like, you know, some people like, like we can, when we do move on to somebody like Paul McCartney, I understand Paul McCartney from a songwriter perspective, you know, who writes perhaps on acoustic guitar or piano and knows about like intros, verses, choruses, and bridges and has that kind of map in his head. And then there's the other that doesn't have a map. And it's all about like just the moment, you know, like what, what comes to me in the moment. You may find yourself shotgun shack and you may find yourself in another part of the world and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife and you may ask yourself
1981. And that's, that's typified in my life in the bush of ghosts, which listening to it now, it seems very ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. So when you're trying to mix something, you need to have, have a... a you need to understand the material you're mixing. So was it hard to get a grasp on what it was they were trying to achieve with that? And when you say that you mixed with Brian and somebody else mixed with David Byrne, so yeah. were you mixing half the record or were you doing full mixes of the whole thing and then comparing and contrasting and, and, and merging it together? No, they were they were off on their own and we were off on their own and on our own. And, you know, I, I ended up putting it all together. Like they sent the mixes and we'd sequence the album and all that. I remember all that. Um, but, you know, for me, in my process at that time, working with Brian was I would patch everything in get everything set up, establish what I considered the norm, you know, the, the basic balance or whatever, the track, the basic EQ of the track, that kind of thing. And then he would sit with me or he would say, hey, man, I'm going to play with it on my own for a minute. And he would go through uh, how he was going to arrange it, like with those cuts, or, or he would pick out parts, of, you know, certain tracks uh, that he wanted to maybe feature and bring those up, or he might even want to do a treatment on it, you know, uh, which meant for me, let's patch in some additional processing, reverbs, delays, and things like that. And we would commit, we would re-record maybe a part now that might have been a very staccato, say, uh, guitar part, and all of a sudden now it's this dreamy, uh, ambient, uh, just legato thing you know that that's tucked in the background kind of scenario so do you have a favorite track on the album um well one that i really remember recording was the guitar part to um geez, what's the title of it it was the section in particular that i remember was water dissolving water removing i think it is there's water at the bottom of the ocean ocean and then his voice is kind of manipulated Water dissolving and water removing. There is water at the bottom of the ocean. Under the water, carry the water. And we did that. Like those manipulations, those things that change the sound of either a voice or an instrument, a guitar too. We did it with David's guitar. He was doing a guitar solo. We ended up putting it through this device called a, um, a prime time. And it was a delay unit that you could regenerate things, but you could also take the, in digital terms now, the sample rate down. So you could slow it down and degrade the signal. And that was something that we just, you know, we did, you know, as he was playing. Like he knew would say, hey, you take this little fader and he would take this knob and David would be playing his guitar. So it was like a communal effort to get something going. And I, I love that song. I mean, not just for that kind of memory, but that's one of their, their kind of like, uh, up-tempo tunes they cut the video on it was mtv actually i can't remember the name of it right now but um that's once they, in a lifetime once in a lifetime somebody did a i'm pretty sure like a version kind of like a mock trump uh, <laughs> video yes i got that yes <laughs> yeah so yeah it's great <laughs> stuff can you make yourself 
living in a shotgun shack and you may find yourself in another part of the world and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife and you know you may say to yourself well how did I get there Okay, so we're into 1982 and we're into the era of the 12-inch mix, which which fascinates me because I, I always loved in the 80s, I always loved a good 12-inch mix. Mm. So um, at, what, at this stage of your career, were you seeing yourself as an engineer who mixed or were you looking to go more into mixing? And how did the whole 12-inch thing come about for you? For me, yeah, that came about really working with the DJs. I mean, at that point, too, like almost any album project that you were working on, they would do some 12-inch remixes. So I was working with Ashwin Simpson on album projects, and then Valerie Simpson's brother, Jimmy, uh, would come and do some remixes. And he would either do those with Michael Hutchinson, who I mentioned earlier, or if Michael wasn't available, I ended up doing so. So uh, that was kind of my start, you know, in doing like 12 inch stuff. I loved working with uh, Ashwin Simpson. They were just so great. They're another great studio experience for me. Then, uh, like I said, I got involved with some of the DJs that were coming through there. Uh, Arthur Baker was involved uh, at, at Sigma quite a bit with John Roby. Uh, I did remixes with them, too. So, yeah, the whole thing started where the club scene was just happening. Like, we could literally, I can remember working with Francois Summer. Summer. Uh, I ended up getting a, it's called Profit One, Pro One, from Sequential Circuits, it's a sense. And I parked it in Studio 8, which was the mix room down in Sigma. And he saw that and, and said, hey, man, can you fire it up? And we fired it up. And he's like, oh, wow, this is cool. I want to use this. You know, so we ended up putting it on, I think it was a Yaz record that I remixed uh, with him. Maybe might have been the first time that we, we used that synth. But I don't remember specifically what song we were working on at the time. But that Yazoo situation. Yeah, the Yazoo. But I don't know if it was this, 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 that song situation. But there was a mix we were working on at Sigma, and it was probably early for us, like 1 a.m., that we felt we had something pretty good. And he said, let's go over to Studio 54. I know the DJ is working and he'll play it. So we got to see if what we were doing was working. 
Do you know what I mean? It was all about the dance floor, the 12 inch remix kind of thing. And then, you know, after doing so many of those remixes, there were certain things. It's not like I like to repeat myself, but I knew what would work on the floor, you know, like in terms of you want to, you want to do drops and breakdowns, you know, and where those were would occur in a song and how far in a song, like where's the best place for that to happen, you know, in terms of like, minutes you know because the average kind of 12 inch would land somewhere in the 6 six thirty to maybe seven twenty kind of range you know mm-hmm. uh, of extension um and you know you'd have to have an intro uh, set up so that a dj could mix out of a song and you'd have to have an outro set up so that the intro and the outro could blend in you know so he could blend that in really nicely um yeah so there'd be so, no sudden ends to a 12 inch mix exactly that. no it would yeah. just go you know they would very speed the turntable to match the bpm right. if the yeah. songs weren't the same yeah i mean there was a whole art into that i you know that that whole dj i used to dj too you know before i actually decided i wanted to just record you know and do records so i kind of brought that also to the table i knew it worked from listening and playing all these records you know and, and doing it myself What a cool thing, though, to have your mix played at Studio 54. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you remember the first time that happened and which which song it was? Or is it No, I don't know the song, but it was with Francois doing that one. Yeah, and then the other times we would go to Jelly Bean work at a place called The Fun House, um, and we'd do the same thing. But but actually, like that was actually like reel-to-reel. We took it from the studio, and they had a reel-to-reel, and they played it there. The other ones would we would take test pressings, you know, acetates they called them or whatever, before they actually printed up the twelve inch run, and uh, you know he'd go play them down there and see how they responded to it. And it's a question I often ask generally, but would you nudge people and say, "Yeah, oh, that's my mix. That I did that." Oh, if I'm out somewhere, you mean? Like yeah, clubs? like if you're in Studio Fifty Four and your song came up, the mix you were playing, would you not? Point to the next person and say, "Look, that's mine. That that's that's my." Yeah, no, no, I don't know, but if my friends were around, they knew. Like they knew I worked on certain things. You know, like I can remember being at a club with some friends. It's actually when I did stuff for Phil Collins, probably Easy Lover or Susa yeah. Studio, one of those, and uh, it came on. You know, and and then they were like telling everybody, you know, that's his. You know, that's his mix. <laughs> The people I interview are way too cool because I, I always say that I would. I'd be telling everybody, that's mine, that is. That's my mix. Yeah, yeah. I go out there and dance to it and listen to it. You know, I want yeah. to hear what it sound like on that system. That's a good point, actually. So when you hear it, do you, have you ever heard it in a club and thought, ah, you know, that bass line's not right or this bit doesn't work. I'm going to go and change that back to how it should be. No, not in the club because, like, the thing that I would kind of say, oh, I could have done a little differently. I don't think it's better, you know, nowadays. It's it's just a different take on things. 
It's just the overall kind of EQ of things. And sometimes that's because the mastering engineer had a different idea of things. You know, like I might say, oh, I, I would have liked more bottom on this one, you know, or that one's a little too bright, you know, kind of thing. But um, no, as far as like the actual kind of arrangement of the 12-inch that I've done, I've been, I've been real happy with, with them, you know. You mentioned the three um, DJs producers that you worked with, like us, Francois Kavorki and John Jellybean Panitez and yeah. Pettibone. What did you learn from each of them? Uh, well, Francois was really great to work with for me because even though at times I'd be like, oh, you know, because this guy would go all night. Not all of them were. Jellybean, not so much. He'd actually book the days because he'd be working that night. But the rest of them were just used to being up all night. You know, they'd play after hours clubs and what have you. But Francois was very creative. You know, he was into dub, you know, and, and I was. And he also, he be, I think he became the most kind of like engineer. He had the most engineer skills out of any of the DJs I worked with, he developed those skills, but he would also be like, he'd steer me, he'd push me. You know what I mean? Like he, he would know right away. There was something about the track he liked and he wanted to concentrate on. And it might be the kick in the baseline or something. So let's make that really happen. You know? And I, I'd be like, I think we're there, you know? And he'd be like, well, let me try this. And he'd go in and he'd start re kind of doing. And then, I'd be like, mm, that's a little too much, you know, and we'd go back and forth, but then we'd find something, you know, so it was good from, from that perspective. Jelly Bean was great in that, like, he kind of let me go and do my thing. And then I would present to him the sections, you know, that I thought we could work on and what we could possibly do in that, like run by a couple options. And he would pick what option. He, yeah. Oh, let's go with this what you're doing here instead of what you just showed me 10 minutes ago kind of thing and kind of steer it that way. And Shep, man, Shep was also like just really good at, we would do, I think with Shep, I, I probably did more overdubs, you know, like the only thing we would do with 12 inch mixes back then, it's not like what you do with a remix now where you just get an acapella version and you rework the whole track Back then, you might overdub like a bass line or a kick or, or like a part, a couple parts, mm. tambourine, some extra percussion, something to make it more danceable kind of thing. And uh, generally, when I worked with Shep, we were overdubbing like tambourines, you know, because people would bring tambourines to the club. They bring their own percussions <laughs> to the club, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. So, so, yeah. I mean, that's what I remember most about that kind of stuff. 1983. Okay, cool. So moving into 1983. So by this time, were you an engineer that did mixes and 12-inch mixes, or were you more like somebody, a mixer that was doing the odd bit of engineering? What, where was the balance at this point? No, at this point, yeah, I was remixing lots of 12 inches, and I was also doing some album mixing too. And uh, 83 probably is when... I went to L.A. with Jellybean. We did a mix for Kim Carnes.
And when we came back, I just felt like, okay, I want to move into production, you know. And um, a, a project came up where they offered me to produce, and I wanted to do it at Sigma. But Sigma was still kind of thinking of me like, you're an engineer, and you're our staff engineer guy. And I was like, well, I want to produce this thing, and here's the budget. Can we make it work? And they're like, mm, they weren't too keen on it. I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. And I ended up going out, and I did it at Right Track. And then it was like, well, once you do that, you're not really on staff here anymore. And, you know, I understood that. And it was a big step for me. But when I was in L.A., I also came across other people. You know, it's just a thing. When you travel, you end up meeting people. They're either staying at the same hotel or they're in the room next to you at the studio. And I met Don Was, And he said, hey, man, I've heard, you know, your stuff. And I like what you're doing. And every time I ask somebody about mixing a record, your name pops up. So he's like, let's do something together, you know. And I was like, fine, you know, let's let's do that. And uh, we exchanged numbers, and then I was just getting set to actually commit to mix like three songs in New York at Sigma. And uh, I get a call, and it's Don. And he's like, hey, man, uh, remember what we talked about? I need you to mix this record. And I'm like, okay, great. Where are you going to be? And I figured he'd be at Right Track because I asked him where it worked when he was in New York. He actually lived in Detroit at the time. And uh, he said, no, I'm in London. You got you, you to gotta come to London. I'm like, oh when are you doing this? And he's like, uh, I want to start Friday. And it was like Wednesday, you know? <laughs> and fortunately I had, uh, I had my passport and I was set to go. And I, I called up the record company and said, you know what? Uh, I'm, I can't really do this for you right now. And off I went, you know, what record was that? that? Uh, was that it was not was, was a, record. No, well, I ended up doing some was not was yeah. stuff, but no, this was a record Don was producing for Virgin. It was my first time over there in London and meeting people at Virgin, which I loved uh, and, and still do to this day. And it was for a band called Floyd Joy. I think they're from okay. Sheffield. Yeah. 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 You can keep your dreams. You can open your eyes. You'll see just where. So what was your first producer credit? And was that in 1983? Because the earliest I could find was 84 for you as, as a producer. Yeah, and that was probably, I saw that thing, I think, on the uh, uh, on the list you had. Was it? Slickophonics and Cabaret Voltaire. Yeah, Slickophonics, that's right. The Slickophonics I did at Right Track, you know, I don't know if I did them before. I did that, that's around the same time. That could be the first or second. I, do, I did a record for a Japanese artist called Motoharo Sana who they said at the time was the first Japanese artist to rap on record. 
And actually, <laughs> okay. it was, let's see, when did I go back? They did a 30th anniversary, I think maybe it was 2014. Yeah, it was probably around 84. And there was an extra track that we recorded back then that they didn't put on the album. So for the anniversary edition, I mixed in L.A. and met Moto in New York. And they did a whole like DVD uh, video documentary on it kind of thing. So, yeah, that, that, those would have been the kind of like first two uh, production credits. Cabaret Voltaire stuff. Once I was over there mixing uh, Floyd Joy, I don't know if I went straight back to the U.S. or hung out a little bit, but Virgin had more work and Cabaret Voltaire was a, another one of their, their bands. So I, I, I ended up, I think, doing two songs with them. His head is not his band Back to the 12 inch mixes in 83. So you work with some big acts. There's the club version of Two Hearts Beat as One for you too. There's a club mix of Everything mm. I Write the Book for Elvis Costello. There's Tell Her About It, Billy mm. Joel, and Say, 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 yeah. Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. Any remembrances of making those? Yeah, yeah, totally. And actually meeting Elvis in LA. I met him, I think it was at the same hotel I was staying at. You yeah, met him at the say, time say, when say, you were I making was... the um, club mix, or was that? separate i think it's when i first went out there with jelly bean and we ended up doing the say 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 that was jelly bean and me what were the other ones you just mentioned it says the u2 one there's pretty joel Say, oh, you too. Yeah, yeah. Billy, Billy Joel was with Jelly Bean. You too would have been with Francois. We also did Sunday Bloody Sunday, but we did that. We did those in New York. Yeah. 
So at this point, are you getting uh, feedback from the artists themselves? Are you meeting them? Are you discussing it? Are you just presenting them with the finished work? Yeah, yeah. Yes and no. <laughs> you know, most of the remixes were uh, stuff that we we would do on our own. You know, the record company would take it, and I would imagine that the artist approved it. All the you know, because I hadn't heard specifically from them. But you know, on some occasions, we would have conversation with the original producers. You know, like whoever it might be. You know, Quincy Jones or or, or whoever. And then it wasn't really until I did the stuff with Phil because he was recording at the townhouse and I was at the townhouse that I had like interact, you know, more interaction with, with, with the artist. So it was, it was, it could be any, it could be the record company, it could be the producer, it could be the artist that I'm going to, you know, have a conversation with at least, you know, or might meet with in person. It just all depended. So when you're saying conversations with the producers, does that basically mean that? get their approval or is it just regardless this is the version that's going to come out because obviously as a producer you'd have done your initial mix you'd have done your yeah. finished version of the record which then you're remixing as a 12 inch yeah. mix do, do you i mean either do you have to get their approval or do you personally like to get their approval and, and then like the mix oh yeah well of course that's that's always nice yeah, so for instance, if it was like Ashford since them and it was an album, you know, that I worked on and now it's a remix. Well, they're there. They're working on the next project, you know. So so they're doing the approval. That's for sure. With some of the other stuff, it might be uh, whoever was the pro- producer. Well, Ashford and Simpson were producer artists, you know, but like for instance, when I did some other projects on my own for Paul, the remixes for Paul McCartney, Phil Ramon was in, involved with one of those, you know, and you Pageant was involved in that. And I knew you from Phil, you know, f- from Phil Collins. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, what I really loved was doing the first mix that I did for Phil Collins at the townhouse and how that all just like came about. Townhouse was just a fantastic studio, you know, in so many ways. So what was your first contact with Phil? Yeah, so I was working over there. I don't remember. It might have been Cabaret Voltaire. I'm not quite sure what what project I was on. But my assistant at Townhouse was this fellow, Steve Barney, who was used, you Pageant's assistant, whenever Phil came in to record. So we had been working on a few things. And uh, he told me, uh, next week, you know, Phil's coming in and I got to um, I'm doing that session. So another assistant was going to come in and take over with me. And uh, I continued on doing what I was doing. I knew Phil Collins was in the other room. Big fan, saw Genesis in concert, you know, as a kid. And uh, the townhouse also had like uh, cooks available. And they would, you know, if you were up all night or got in early, you could get breakfast there. And it was a communal, you know, kind of area that you would get your food in. And so I'd see him, you know, but I didn't didn't have any conversation with him. And then uh, one night I'm walking down the hallway and, and I hear Tokes, Tokes. That's my nickname then, they would call me. And I turn and it's Phil. And he's like, hey, man, you got second? And I was like, sure. And he's like, uh, I got something I need remixed. And I heard from Steve that you do good remixes. I'm like, yeah, well. What do you got? And he played me uh, whatever mix that he had on cassette at the time of Easy Love. And I said, sure, I'd love to work on it. 
when do you need it by, you know, I'm doing this thing. And he's like, Oh, I need it. It's that kind of thing. I need it this weekend. <laughs> like you need it this weekend. Monday is by Monday. Is that good? Yeah. Yeah. Monday is good. That weekend. He's like, I'm out. I'm not going to be around. I'm like, Oh, okay. Uh, what you doing? Oh, I'm recording this Christmas song. It's, <laughs> do you, do you know it's Christmas? Right? <laughs> so, uh, Anyway, I worked on that that thing all weekend, you know, and here it is. It's Monday morning and it's probably like, I don't know, 10 a.m. And Phil's in. I know he's in the building because I'm basically in, I was mixing, I think, in his, like the room that he, he was mainly going to use. I said, I'm almost there. Why don't you go get breakfast? And when I'm done, I'll, I'll call you in. And I put the final like edit pieces together. I said, yeah, come on in. And he came in, you came in, and Daryl Strummer, the guitar player, came in. And they're all listening to the to the mix. And Phil's kind of sitting at the console next to me. And the rest of the guys, you and, and Daryl, are up kind of near the speakers. And I start, you know, I start the playback and the song goes. And probably like eight bar, four, eight bars in, Phil just leans over and it's like I thought of that intro, I would have used it on my version. So I thought, okay, that's a good sign. Result, yeah. You know, then we, yeah, yeah. We went through, you know, and then, yeah. He, he loved it, and not, yeah, it was done, you know. It was done. He, he gave it the thumbs up.
And that, that started me remixing a bunch of things for him. You know, we did a whole like kind of EP of remixes. I did yeah. a bunch for him and then I did Genesis and then uh, Peter Gabriel. So, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. get to that. Um, yeah. So how long do you normally take the 12 inch mix then? So, so was a weekend a mad rush or is that normally enough time to get a 12 inch mix done? Yeah, normally, I mean, there. what I'd like to do, when I ended up just being in charge of kind of the pace of that remix was, for me, it was about learning what's in front of me, <laughs> where everything comes in and out. Do I want to use it all? You know, what do I want to change about it? establishing a good balance, like actually what would my mix kind of of the album version or the single version be? And then in the course of that, also notating what I want to focus on, you know, or what could I add to it that's going to, you know, help it become more danceable kind of scenario. So that first day is about getting the sound of it together all of it the eq the compression the reverbs the delays whatever that is and then the next day it's kind of like half a day uh would be making those pieces and put it together because again you're mixing and you might have some automation but you don't know what it's going to sound like until you make that edit on the mix machine of how those two pieces you just mixed are going to blend together because when you make the edit, you don't want them to know that you made an edit. And again, this is analog tape, not digital, where you can do all kinds of manipulations mm -hmm. to make things sound like they happen, were meant to happen that way. So sometimes I'd have to go back and remix that section again and cut the verb or elongate the verb, you know, into a section so that the cross, you know, fade, the edit splice point would work better, you know, that kind of thing or i didn't bring the guitar up loud enough because now that's the the featured part it sounded great while i was mixing it but not in context to the piece that was in front of it or the piece that's coming after it kind of thing so that's fascinating yeah it's about mixing in parts we'll get into that later because that's that's really really fascinating yeah. to me but in 84 so you engineered on a blancmange album Mange 2 which i find looking at the credits quite fascinating as well because looking at it there's one two three seven engineers credited there's seven assistant engineers credited there's three engineers in new york including yourself and five assistant engineers so which one was this blancmange Mange 2 the blancmange album i don't know uh-huh Really yeah, trying to remember uh, trying to so, remember that one yeah. and and you're credited as mixing the same tracks it's not like some of you did two or you did two another person did another two. you all did the same number of tracks so how would that have worked out oh. is you michael Hutchins, Jeez, i don't know and james doherty engineer in new york oh, yeah. with five yeah. assistant engineers yeah yeah that's so that that that's like that was staff sigma engineers right there Michael, Jim, and me, and yeah. all the assistants there. Do they, do they list the assistants? Is it like yeah, Linda Rondazzo, Jimmy Sun, yeah. Eliza yeah, yeah. Gura, Melanie West, and Glenn Rosenstein? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Glenn actually was my assistant on a lot of things. And then he became a producer in his own right. And actually, right now, he owns, uh, he's part owner in Fame Recording Studios, which oh, is wow. Russell Shoals in Alabama. He lives in Nashville and in Alabama. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I know those names. The other names on there, I don't know how that worked out. Who were the who was the producer on that? Does it list it? Um, for those tracks, yes, Blue Peter Collins, 
uh, John Owen Williams, and then John Luongo for the tracks that you worked. Luongo, yeah, I worked with John yes. Luongo, and we all John Luongo worked at Philly. I mean, and he, he might have worked at Philly too a little bit, but definitely in New York. He's from Boston originally, I think. And yeah, he worked with all of us. Uh-huh. So would it have been like you'd have worked on different tracks or would you have worked on all the tracks together with the three engineers and five assistants? I mean, how would that Whatever be? tracks, yeah, John wanted us to work. I would imagine probably was like, yeah, maybe three tracks and we all got to kind of work on them at some point. And then, you know, he'd mix with whoever was available kind of scenario. Line hope, line vision, line center. Center, line living and seeing, line hell, line hell, line visions and the reasons for action, line words, line visions and the reasons for action, line words. What was your attitude towards engineering at this point? Were you still enjoying that? Were you still either wanting to just do the mixing or the production? Oh no, I love. I still love tracking to this day, man. I, I love the studio is really interesting for me because I, I do live work too now and broadcast work too. But but the thing that I loved initially about the studio was the uh, assembly, you know, and synchronicity of people in a room you know, working together on something. And that's what you get when you track it. You know, when you're mixing, it could be a solitary thing or just maybe a partnership. You know, it's more limited, more intimate, you know. But the recording aspect of it, to me, I just love it. I love all the gear set up, you know, like just I like all that happening at once. And that's why I like doing live sound too. It's like, it's a moment, you know, and it's a performance, you know, um, and it's a group, you, you know, it's a team of people coming together to put things together. That's the thing that I really miss about studios now is everybody's got a digital workstation in their own private room. And it's rare that you get to go into a nice facility that's got multiple uh, recording environments where the, you know, people are and, and you can have like, you know, friendly competition or shared, uh, you talk about the process. You just, you know, people go about it different. What works for them? You know, maybe it'll work for me. I don't know. You know, try it on kind of thing. There's, there's just, there's things that you can't think of on your own. You know what I mean? Yeah. You need somebody else to kind of like stimulate that. So, yeah. So your favorite film of the eight is. You know what? I couldn't give you just one because to me in the 80s, there are lots of films that I really liked. If I was going to pick one that's my favorite, I would say E.T., The Extraterrestrial, because I took my mom to a theater in New York to to watch that movie. And it it was like, you know, the biggest theater in New York that was playing it. And there was a line for, you know, it was an event kind of scenario. It's not that we don't believe you, honey. Well, it was real, I swear. Maybe it was an iguana. It was no iguana. Maybe a... a, You know how they say there are uh, alligators in the sewers? Alligators in the sewers. All we're trying to say is maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. It was nothing like that, penis breath! Elliot! (laughs) 
down. Dad would believe me. But I mean, I love so many movies from from the eighties. There's like Scarface, you know, Field of Dreams. That, what a double bill that would be! Eating Scarface together, that'd be good. Yeah, <laughs> Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, but one that sticks out is Do the Right Thing because I remember seeing that I was working with a, a, a band in in Paris, and I went to the Champs Elysees one day. I had off probably on a Sunday. And the only movie that, that I saw that was playing in English was that, it was Do the Right Thing. So quite like that movie. Doctor. Come here, Doctor. Man, I gotta go. I'm working, I'm, I'm working, doctor. I'm working. Doctor, this is the mayor talking. All right, all right. Doctor. Come on, what, what? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. Okay, favorite TV program or series of the 80s? I dug Max Headroom watching that, you know, okay. while I was in, in London. Saturday Night Live, you know, that was kind of big with the staff people at Sigma, you know. So uh, I'll remember those two. What was your favorite era of Saturday Night Live? That you remember what yeah, that are, I like that early era. I mean, there's a lot after that, but I mean the original cast, you know, when it first started, it, it was nice. I think I'm not sure it might have started like 78, 79, but I think it was 75. I think the first. Season. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Probably pretty ready for this job. We got one more uh, kind of psychological test we always do here. It's just a word association. I'll uh, throw you out a few words uh anything that comes to your mind just throw it back at me okay just kind of an arbitrary thing like if i said dog you'd say tree tree <laughs> dog tree fast slow rain snow white black bean pod negro whitey Tar baby. What'd you say? Tar baby. Oh, fake. Colored. Redneck. Jungle bunny. Pack of wood. Spear chucker. White trash. Jungle bunny. Hunker. Spade. Hunker, hunker. Nigger. Dead hunker. Favorite book of the 80s? Yeah, books, you know. It's like I wasn't doing a lot of book reading there that I can remember. And I don't know if specifically the 80s. I might have read it just around the 80s. No, actually in the 80s, probably what I read is some kind of trash from the airport, like a Jackie Collins book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was called Chances. But but I do remember, too, reading uh, this book called Helter Skelter uh, that was about the Manson Tate murders. Yes. Yes. And there's a whole story on that that, I'm not going to mention where I was at the time. I don't know if you want to go into it. But anyway, that that was an interesting book. Uh, I'll say that much. Yeah. Okay, intriguing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Favorite live event attended in the 80s? 
Oh, wow. There were some good ones for me. I think the one that really loads just like, wow. I saw Prince during his Dirty Mind tour play at a place called the Ritz in New York. Um, at the time, I'm pretty sure I opened up for him. But seeing Prince, actually Prince recorded at, at Sigma New York. I never got to meet him. Uh, I just saw him. You have to come up in an elevator and get buzzed in. So I'm on the TV screen for a second. And that was it. But but I went to see him play at the Ritz. And Dirty Mind, I don't know if you remember the album cover, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure on that cover, he's wearing like a handkerchief around his neck, a G-string and boots. Yes. You know? yes. <laughs> and that's how he came out <laughs> and played and just like was insane. I mean, you know. So talented, just incredible. So, right then, near the beginning of his career as well, so it was before he broke through. Yeah, and then you know what? I've seen a lot of people, or actually got to work with, kind of like breakthrough uh, albums for some artists, and I've seen them play like small places. The Ritz was probably, I would say, at least fifteen hundred people. But you know, I've seen bands play like for fifty to hundred people, and then I see them play in a ten thousand seat arena you know and it's the same show if it's that's why they broke through do you know what i mean it's mm. like they're not playing to the crowd they're playing because that's who they are you know and they yeah. they, they bring it they just bring it okay 80s song you wish you had done a 12 inch mix for okay song one song i would say i mean i got to work you know do some michael jackson but i think beat it that might have been a good one. I'd have liked to have done that. I don't even know if there's any 12-inch remixes of it. I'm not sure there is, actually, no. I don't think there was yeah. any thriller, was there? Yeah. Um, is there a, what's your favorite 12-inch yeah. mix that somebody else has done? Favorite mix that somebody else has done. When you heard it, you thought, oh, I wish I'd done that. That's, that's, that's great. Well, I wish I'd done that when I heard they were mastering some stuff for Scrooge Politi. It was Virgin Act, and I said, what is that? I, I really like that. And I'm like, oh, it's these two guys from New York, and Arif Martin produced it, but they're going to be doing, you know, we've got more songs. You want to work with them? I'm like, yes, I do. So <laughs> I ended up mixing the single uh, Perfect Way for them, and uh, I think two other tunes off that record, and then produced with them, uh, Boom, There She Was, I think. Yeah, that one. We, we did, that was for like a Madonna movie. But yeah, that I thought when, when I first heard Security, I was like, it reminded me a little bit of Art of Noise. And then I found out that one of the engineers had worked with Art of Noise. Gary London, yes. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And I met Gary later on. He was at Townhouse. Yeah.
part one of the interview. Thanks. So many thanks to John for the fascinating chat. Like I said, consider this the extended intro. Uh, part one, part two will be like the meat of the conversation where, where it's 12 inch central. Which I think I've seen that film. Where it's all Phil Collins, Genesis, Peter Gabriel, McCartney, Thompson Twins, New Order, etc. etc. So worth checking out. Some really interesting stuff about the mechanics of a 12 inch mix. It's worth listening to. Thank you all for listening and supporting the pod, spreading the word, etc. Thank you. John did some work with Floyd Joy talk about the song to end with which oh and also I always end the episode with one of the kids quoting a related lyric um, but Jimmy Buffett died recently so I'm, I've used the Jimmy Buffett couplet instead anyway, uh, Floyd Joy did the original version of Week in the Presence of Beauty and I actually think I prefer this version to the Alison Moye version so uh, we'll end with that and until next time here's to the extra five inches
Life and ink, they run out at the same time. So said my old friend the squid. Oh. <laughs>